Hi everyone, and welcome back to the All Stars Journey. I'm your host, Matt Charles, and in this episode, we're going to be chatting to a very successful man. He goes by the name of Warwick Schiller. Warwick has not only competed in the World Equestrian Games for Australia, 2010-2018, he's also been very successful in looking outside the box. Warwick has not only coached NRHA World Champions, NRHA Rookie of the Year, Australian Champions, US Champions. His outlook within the horse bowl has changed quite significantly. And not only is it great to help yourself, but it's also great how it affects your horses. Anyway, let's have a chat to Warwick and find out more about him. Our proud sponsor for this episode is Natasha Daly from Stitchamon. They're located on Main Street in Lithgow. Tash can help you with all your embroidering custom heat press needs, whether it's workwear, sports teams, jackets and prizes. Just send her an email and she can help you out. She also does vehicle signs, magnets, banners, business cards, logos and various apparel. She also looks after my merchandise and keeps me looking great. She also looks after the New South Wales Reigning Horse Association merchandise too. So if you're in need of any merchandise, don't be afraid to catch Natasha Daly from Stitchamon Embroidery. You can find her on Facebook. Oh. Hey, Matt, how's it going? Good, Warwick. How are you? Yeah, good, mate. That's all right. How's your day been? Uh, not too bad. We had a little bit of rain last night, our first rain since April, so it was good. Wow. Lay the dust. <laughs> yes. Yes, nothing nothing worse than having dust around the place. Well, that's perfectly normal here. Like California, that's, that's how it goes. It doesn't rain. We don't get summer thunderstorms or anything like that. It just... Uh, you know, you have it, it rains in the winter and it doesn't rain in the summer. Yeah, right. Okay. Fair enough. Oh, cool. Um, well, thanks for joining on, joining me on the podcast. Hey, no worries. I think we're going to have some fun. Um, so let's start off with kind of how you got into the horse industry. And um, I know there's so much we can actually talk about. So I'm pretty excited about this one. Uh, we wanted to start with the whole horse thing. Uh, you know, I grew up on a 1,200-acre sheep and wheat farm just just uh, west of Young, New South Wales. Uh, you know, Dad rodeoed as a, a young fella and did all the events. And then, uh, you know what, he, he'd stopped all the rough stock events by the time I can remember, so I only remember seeing him calf rope. Um, but anyway, we always had horses around the place. And, um, you know, he always used horses for mustering the sheep and stuff. And, uh, you know, he had a rope horse around there quite a bit. And then, you know, I started, I can't remember when I started riding. I don't honestly remember when I started riding, but it wasn't, it wasn't like I was three or something like that. But I remember I was in year five and I broke my arm at West Wyalong Rodeo on a steer ride. 
so that means I was 10 then, and I know I was riding horses for a while before that. So I'm guessing like seven or eight, something like that. Yeah, right, okay. So did you guys have a big property out there? Uh, well, we lived on 1,200 acres, but we didn't own the place. Dad just worked there. So we lived on a house. On yeah, the right, okay. He's a station hand. That's what it says on my birth yep. certificate. Father's occupation, station hand. Oh, <laughs> uh, he must have been a hardworking man then. He was. <laughs> um, yeah, cool. So from there, how did you progress into um because I kind of I was just getting into kind of the reigning scene over here in Australia and um when you guys came back, you and Robin came back, that's oh, okay. kind of the first time that I heard about you guys. Um, and kind of wish I spent a bit more time with you, but I was just kind of new to the whole thing. Um, but so, so from, from as a kid, how did you progress into, you know, riding reining horses and then moving back and forward to the, from the States? Uh, well, you know, we started, you know, started riding pony club and then we started going to quarter horse shows. There used to be a ACT in Southern New South Wales quarter horse association and they'd have shows in Yass and uh, Queenbeyan, I think. And we'd go to shows, you know, the quarter horse shows over there. So you do a little bit of everything. I had two brothers and dad showed too. So we'd take four horses over there and show all day long. And, you know, that was earlier on. And then, you know, as time went on and not, I didn't think things really got specialized much by the end of it. There was no, you know, but, but the, you know, you, we started, reining was still something you just did on your, on your horse, you did everything else on. But uh, we started yep. seeing, you know, magazines and videos and DVDs and stuff. From, oh, not DVDs. <laughs> that was cassette tapes back then. From America, I'm like, wow, <laughs> that's, you know, that's, uh, that's pretty cool. So I thought, yeah, that's something. You know, the thing, the thing that, uh, you know, a lot of the kids that I showed in the youth with, like, say, Todd Graham and, and Roger Wagner and Sean and Eddie Flynn, and they were, Earlier on, especially say Roger, he started going and, and doing the cutting stuff. We used to go down to the what was called the Southern Circuit, which was a series of quarter horse shows in Victoria in January. And one of the show it was like a Saturday Sunday show, then there was a Tuesday Wednesday show, then there's a Saturday Sunday show, and they're in different places. And one of the shows was at Roger's place at Phillip Island. And I remember we stayed there in between the shows, and he was he was uh, you know he was young at the time, probably fourteen maybe. I was about 15 or 16 and he was showing me stuff he was learning with his cutting horse. And I was like, Whoa, that is completely different than the way we go about things. Like you kind of, you kind of teaching them how to do it and letting them do it rather than making them do it. And I thought that was really cool, but we didn't really have any access to cattle and stuff where we were, but, but then, you know, the, the, the raining, it seemed like it's the next coolest thing apart from, from cutting. So I always kind of had a bit of an interest in it. And, um, yeah, I went to the, I listened to the podcast of Rob Lawson the other day and he was talking about that first reigning, uh, reigning futurity at uh, Lucky Young's place in Whittlesea. So I was, uh, yep. I was down there at that. I went down there with Phil and Dot Rody. Um, yeah, nice. We actually were driving down there and I had an F100 and it blew up. And so we left it and uh, I ended up going, just driving down there with them. Um, and so I was interested in that, but I, you know, I was working in the Commonwealth Bank at the time as a bank teller basically and yep. you know so didn't really have really didn't have access to having a horse and all that sort of stuff but i was still really interested and 
it's funny enough that F100, I'd bought it, I'd bought it for, um, bought it off um, Peter Schumach, who's the president of the NCHA. He was the best man at my wedding yep. later on, but I bought it off him and uh, I only paid 5,000 bucks for it because the, the paint was all sun faded and had some rust in the wheel arches and stuff like that. But the NRMA would insure that make year and model for 10 grand. And, and in sometime in 1990, early 1990, I said to someone, you know, I wish I knew how to write this thing off because if I could write it off without killing myself, I would take that money and I'd go to America and learn how to train running horses. And you've got to be careful what you <laughs> wish for because about three months later, I'm driving along and uh, I was actually coming back from a horse show in Scone. I was living in West Wyland at the time and I'm driving back and I was around Golgong somewhere there and I was going about 120 k's or so and blew the left front tire, ran off the road into a stand of small gum trees, not one big gum tree because one big gum tree might have wrote the truck off and me and not one small gum tree because it wouldn't have wrote the truck off, but it was enough small gum trees grouped together that had enough cushion that I opened the door and stepped out and I was perfectly fine, but it wrote the truck off. So that's how I went to America. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Well, that's, that's a, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure there's not too many other people that would have the same story as that. Uh, you know what? Funnily enough, I just did a podcast on uh, what's known as manifesting, which is putting stuff out there and uh, having it come true. And yeah, believe it or not, when you really get into that stuff, everybody's got a story like that maybe not quite that one but yeah yeah right yeah, okay I, my whole life's been a bit of that stuff. yeah true well you know since I'll, I'll probably leave this next question down the track a little bit um <clears throat> so when you guys moved over to the states um how long were you over there for uh, I originally went for a year because at the time i was working for the commonwealth bank and they'd give you a year's leave without pay um so you could travel or whatever. So you have a job when you come back. It won't necessarily be where you were before, but you're guaranteed a job when you come back. And so I took that and I went to the States for 12 months. And I knew one person or two people in the US at the time. Um, as yep. a girl I'd met at um, the National Finals Radio at Cootamundra. And her and a friend were just traveling around Australia. They were tourists. And I got chatting them at the bar one night. And that, that's that's it. We chatted at the bar at the rodeo one night. And and uh, then I got a, a address or whatever, and I was writing back and forth to her. Not it wasn't a romantic thing; we we're just friends, you know. And uh, like she was sending me jeans yep. and stuff. She worked in a, a, a feed and tax store. Anyway, when I was coming to America, I emailed her and said, oh. "Hey, I'm coming to America." She said, "Well, come come to mum and dad's place." And so I, I went to their place, and I was uh, oh about ten days in. We went up to Cow Palace. So Cow Palace is in San Francisco, and it used to be the last PRCA rodeo of the year. So like everybody trying to qualify for the national funds, but there's a big horse show there too. And we went up the day that the rain cow horse was on and I'm sitting there watching the rain cow horse. I'm like, yeah, this is, this is all right. But the raining is a bit, you know, a bit, how you going sort of thing. And then they had this raining stakes class and this great big, big fella comes in on this gray horse and runs and stops and turns. I'm like, that's the stuff right there. That's what I want to do. That's it right there and so the fellow who was judging that day his name's tony amaral and tony amaral is a legend in the in the, the cow horse you know he's a legendary hackamore guy and the people i was staying with knew tony amaral and they went and said to him hey this kid's looking for a job do you know anybody's looking for a job and he said yeah don murphy's looking for someone well don murphy was the big guy that won the reigning on the big gray horse and so i got, him, oh, I got wow. his phone number and um 
rang him up and he said, yeah, come out, come out tomorrow, the next day or whatever. And so I went and saw him and he, we had a chat and he said, yep, start Monday. And that was on a, like a Friday or something. And he was leaving Sunday to go to the AQHA world show. And so I showed up there. He wasn't even there. Um, his daughter, Nellie and his son, CJ, they were there and, and his Don's in-laws, his mother-in-law and father-in-law were staying in the house with him. And, and uh, Nellie just took me around the first afternoon I got there and said, okay, here's your list of horses, ride that one, that one, that one, that one. So I started riding and uh, Don wasn't even there. Uh, and then I was there, that was, so I started Monday and uh, I had a little, you know, house trailer thing to live in. And, and Wednesday at lunchtime, I'm having lunch then a little trailer and uh, Don's mother-in-law comes running down and she bangs on the door. She goes, quick, 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 come up to the house. Mort's had a heart attack. Mort's had a heart attack. So Mort was Don's father-in-law. And so we run up right. to the house and I run in the house and I said, where is he? She goes down the hall in the bedroom. And so we run down there and she's kind of leaning over him and I can hear him. I'm pretty sure he's fine because he's, he's breathing real heavy like that. So I think, Oh, well, he's, he's okay. And then she said, eh, eh, we need to open the window. And she got up and she ran to the window to open the window. And when she did that heavy breathing went with her and I realized it wasn't him. It was her. And, uh, I reached in and touched him. He was cold. Oh, wow. So, yeah, that was a pretty interesting uh, first week having having Mort have a heart attack and die right there. So there, yeah. So then Don had to pack up at the World Show and he drive drove straight home from the World Show, which is about twenty five or six or seven hours or something or other. But yeah, so that was the that was the that was wow. my first week there. So so Don, you know, <laughs> at the time you were shown a lot in the quarter horse shows and shown in the reigning and the cow horse. Um, for years he just did just did the cow horse stuff and now he's you know he's in the, the rain cow horse hall of fame and now a lot of the big time trainers yep. have him as a coach he doesn't train horses anymore but he coaches and he coaches a lot of the coaches a lot of non-pros but he also coaches a lot of the the trainers as well and so i was there for a year or less bit yes less than a year um and then when i was going on my plans but to just come back to australia and go back to doing what i was doing and mess around with horses on the side and the day I was leaving there, we yep. shook hands on the, on the veranda and he said, so I'll, you know, if you want to come back, I'll give you a job. He said, you could do this for a living if you wanted to. And I'd never, ever. Yeah. Well, I'd never considered that. I've never really had a lot of self-confidence. And so, and any, any appearing self-confidence I had was just false, you know? Um, so I, I never yep. really, you know, I, I didn't, I never had, you know, that was for other people doing that sort of thing. And so I, I'd met my wife, Robin, in the meantime. I chased her the whole time I was there. She ran like a scalded cat. And uh, I came back to Australia <laughs> and went back to the bank. And the bank actually sent me up to Baraba, which is just north of Tamworth. And it was funny enough, there was a lady that worked in the bank with me that lived, but she lived in, had a place in, or she was a, I think she was a, um, a substitute manager. Like the manager was on holidays or something rather than she was there. And she had quarter horses, well-bred ones. She had... Uh, she had a yearling filly that was by Doc's Freckles Oak out of, oh, a daughter of Mondek or something or other. But anyway, so she had some horses. And so she brought them up there to the, the showgrounds at Baraba. And uh, I started training them. So I'd get up in, early in the morning. And I didn't have a car. I had a push bike. And uh, I'd get up early in the morning. I'd pedal my bike out to the race course. And I'd ride one of them and clean the stalls. And then I'd go to pedal back home and have a shower and go to work in the bank and then pedal out there, pedal home after work, get changed and pedal out there and then ride the other one before dark and clean and feed up and stuff. And 
um, yeah, I did that while I was home, but I was home for about six months and then I'm like, nah, I'm going back. So, um, you know, Robin's letters had got, Robin actually missed me chasing her around when I wasn't chasing her. So her, her letters <laughs> got a bit nicer and, uh, you know, Don had, there was the, the job offer with Don. So I, so yeah, I went back and then I basically, you know, stayed after that. So then I was there from so was yep. 1992, I went back. And so there I was there till 2006. And that's when Robin and I moved back to Australia. Okay. Yeah, cool. Um, <clears throat> so when you guys moved back to Australia, how long were you back here for? And, and you guys brought a couple of stay-ins back with you, didn't yep. you too? Yeah, so we, we moved back there. We're there for four years. And so we, we had a... a two studs one was a rooster stud that was out of a smart little lena mare his name smart like smart and the other one's name was the whiz revolution he was by topsail whiz out of a uh, granddaughter uh, bueno check so she's that he was that that perfect you know that that perfect topsail whiz cross that topsail whiz on the bueno checks cross um he suffered an injury as a two-year-old and never really recovered from it you know tore the outside branch of his hind suspensory and so never it healed up, right. but he never was a performance horse after that. Um, I, th I mean, he is rideable. You know, he's still in Australia, and I think he's doing a bit of drafting right now, actually. Um, but, yes, we bought those two studs back just, to, you know, and, and I had been told the first year you import a studs, your best year for a while. Everybody breeds to the new horse on the block sort of thing, and then it drops off after that until the offspring from that year uh, three-year-olds and they go and show and if they do good then you get a lot of mares and so but the first year is your best chance of yep. making your money back and so we got back there just in time for ei to break out and so we had a lot of contracts we had a lot of people who want to breed mares but the vets could not go out to the and we could ship we could collect them and we could ship it but the vets couldn't go out to people's places and inseminate them so we basically lost that whole first breeding season and that was probably, you know, that that was part of one of the things that why we ended up coming back. You know, it didn't, it just almost got off to a really bad start. Yep. Um, and when you guys came back, uh, did you guys kind of start bringing the NRHA? Um, <laughs> let's let's, in, yeah, let's kind of <laughs> that one out. Yeah. So the rainy. <laughs> Raining in Australia had a board meeting about six months before we came back and they voted to adopt the American rule book because that was when NRHA was putting pressure on other countries to, hey, if you want to use our judges and our judging system and whole thing, you've got to join us and we want some of your money. And so Raining Australia, or, yeah, it was Raining Australia at the time, I think, had, had decided to do that six months before we ever came back. And then we got back there. So, you know, I'd, I'd been training Rainers and shown a bit. You know, my wife was uh, an NRHA judge. She was an NRHA show secretary. So she knew how to do all the office work, which is, it's, you know, that's quite complicated. Uh, she was an NRHA judge, NRHA show secretary. She's an NRHA world champion. She won the limited open world title and the intermediate open reserve world title in 2003, maybe. And so, and that was, running Australia was kind of struggling with the, the transition into all these new rules and this and that and something else. And so, uh, you know, here you have a, an NRHA judge and an NRHA show secretary living in Australia. So they invited her to come on the board of, of Raining Australia. And then I thought, oh, well, I may as well 
I might as well go along too. If she's going to go to the meetings, I might as well go along. I'd like to have some input. And so, yeah, it's funny you said that us, did we bring it in? You know, we, we actually had heard rumors that, yeah, the only reason we're going to put up with this crap is because that them bloody shillers made us do it, <laughs> which is, you know, it's funny how, <laughs> how things happen. But yeah, we've, we had, uh, we had several people point their fingers at us and say, it's, this is all your fault because you made us do this. <laughs> like, it was here when we got here. But anyway, that's how it goes. Yeah, but, but yeah. Um, but I suppose like just getting the NRHA kind of, you know, happening within Australia is just going to make, you know, bring out the standards of the reigning, bring out the standards of the judging. So then the whole sport itself, you know, is going to get. Yeah, well, that better. was my reason for going on the board. You know, uh, actually, I, I went to, we went up to Gatton to the, they had the, they had the Futurity show at Gatton. Um, because I've never been to that place in Sydney, whatever it's called, the one where they had the Olympics, SIAC, I think they call it. But we, yeah. Oh, SIAC, yep. But, uh, but they decided to move it up to Gatton, and uh, I think I just got on the board. And I know nothing about SIAC, and, but at the board meeting they tell us we can't afford to do it, it's going to go under, so we've got to find an alternate venue, and that's how it, that's how it ended up going to Gatton. Um, but at Gatton, I remember I was at the bar one night having a beer and this bloke kind of got me face and said, so you're on the board now, what's your agenda? Everybody's got on there for an agenda. I said, my only agenda really is to, to help shape what you see inside the arena, what, what you see in the class, what the, the, the level of the, the reigning. I really don't care about the politics of the whole thing. I don't care one way or the other. Every decision I make will be because it will make a, you know, people seeing raining for the first time, hopefully we'll be seeing better raining. That's, that's the only reason I'm on the board. I'm not, you know, I'm not on the board to, I don't really want to, uh, you know, so I, I, there's nothing in it for me. Like, you know, um, yep. yeah, that was, that was just a, just a benefit. Yeah. Sport, and, and it was an interesting, it was an interesting time. Cause you know, Rob and I had just come back from the States. Martin Larkin had just come back from Europe and Martin was on the board too. And then there was another, there was someone else on the board who had just come back from living in the States and, you know, she worked for Craig Schmersel for a while. And, and so it was interesting at the board meetings because there was, it was like the two sides of the board meeting. There was us on one side and the thems on the other side. And, and uh, yeah, it was, it was really interesting because Martin really had no experience of reigning in the States he only had experience of raining in Europe. Yep. So he had been around raining at a high level. We'd seen a lot of raining at a high level and we'd seen how it was run and how it was done. And, um, you know, so we had it, we had Martin and I had two different perspectives, but then, then there was the, the guys on the other side of the table had a completely uh, different perspective. So it was, yeah, it was interesting times. We had some, we had some interesting board meetings. You know, the very <laughs> yeah, first true. board meeting I think I went to, um, they're talking about having the futurity and they're talking about their two go-rounds and their finals. And I said, uh, how many horses do you get in the futurity every year? And they go, oh, we get, you know, most times we get 15. And I said, why are you having two go-rounds and a final to sort out 15 horses? You know, the, the more you, them three-year-olds, the more you show them, the worse they're going to get. And, and yeah, everybody definitely. on the other side of the room said, no, no, the more you show them, the better they get. And Martin looked at me and I looked at Martin and I'm like, we both said, well, in our experience, that's not the case. I mean, we can only speak from 
basically I can only speak from, you know, the reigning futurity I've seen in America and Martin can only speak about the, the reigning he's seen in, in Europe. And he said, but no, in our experience, that's not the case. But anyway, yeah, so there was just, there was, there was things like that that were really, really interesting. And then, yep. yeah, those board meetings were, were quite interesting at times. <laughs> Fair enough. So from, um, from there, you guys ended up heading back to the States. Um, and then what was your next move over there? Well, yeah, well, the move back to the States was Robin, you know, after Robin moved back, she realized it was mostly homesickness. But there was another, uh, another yep. part of it, which she, I think she thought was a bigger part at the time, was, you know, Australia has the whole tall poppy syndrome thing. And Americans really don't understand it. And I was listening to your podcast with, I think it was Quentin Stapleton recently. And, and, and you asked yep. Quentin about his experience in America. And he said, yeah, the big difference is Americans are so positive. Negative Australians tend to be negative and Americans are so positive about stuff. And that, that was probably one of the, you know, I actually wanted to stay in Australia and Robin wanted to move back. But, you know, when you, when you have people you've never met, telling other people they hate your guts. It yep. kind of gets you a little bit. And that was the whole, the Schillers bought the bloody NRHA to the, the, the thing, you know what I mean? Um, so that was a, that was a part of it. But, but when yeah, Robin, right. after we moved back, Robin goes, you know what? I realized that was, that was, I can put up with that stuff. That's not that big a deal. And mostly I was just homesick and you don't, you know, they say for women moving countries, the first 10 years is the worst. So the first 10 years okay. is the worst, which means that's the worst of it. It's still there after that. And so, um, yeah, so we moved back the end of 2010, just after the World of Question Games. And then I had to, I had to basically start all over again, all over again. And so I was, uh, you know, I started getting some rainers in, but I had, I'd started taking in lots of different problem horses, you know, warm bloods that buck and rear and bolt and stuff like that. And around the same time... Yep. I don't know what made me do it, but I, oh, that's right. I'd been doing some clinics in Australia. So how I got to do, and, you know, kind of like when I, when I said, you know, Don Murphy said to me, you could do this for a living if you wanted to. I'd never, I'd never thought about that. And I'd also not thought about a lot of other stuff and the clinics came to me. I didn't decide I want to do clinics because when I was on the board of running Australia, uh, 2000 and early 2008, I think at a board meeting, they said, Hey, we want some, they want someone to do a raining demo in one of the little demo pens at Equitana. Can anybody do that? And I'm like, well, you know, cause a lot of them were from Queensland. And I said, yeah, well, I'm only eight hours from Melbourne and we've got, we had that smart, like smart start. It was a pretty cool raining horse. He made the, he made the open futurity finals over here with Joe Schmidt. You've been to Joe's place, haven't you? Uh, so yeah, right. Cool. When he worked for Frank Belayer. Um, and so I thought, yeah, I can take Smarty down there and do a little bit of a raining demo, whatever. And, Equitana heard I was coming down there and they have that, that cult starting that way, uh, way of the horse thing. And so they contacted me and they said, would you like to do yep, the in arena commentating, like the color commentating, not so much the introductions and stuff, but the what's going on in the arena. And I'm like, yeah, that's cool. I could do that. And you know, that place holds three or 4,000 people when it's packed for the way of the horse. And so I commentated on the way of the horse three days in a row in front of three or 4,000 people. And I, you know, I explained what I did was I talked to all the guys beforehand and I said, what's your process? Where are you going to start? What are you going to do next? What are you going to do after that? So I had an idea what they were, what they were doing. And so when I saw them 
starting to shape up the beginning of an idea, I'd go, okay, hey, everybody watch what this guy's doing. It looks like he's not doing it right now, but in a minute, he's going to turn that into getting the halter on. And you're going to, if you don't watch this bit right here, you'll think, oh, that horse was easy to get the halter on. But this little thing he's doing right here is a huge part of it. You know, that sort of thing. And after Equitana, I had a lot of people yep, call yep. me and go, hey, we saw you at Equitana and really liked the way you explained stuff. Would you like to come up and do a clinic for our little quarter horse club or whatever? And, you know, like I said, I didn't, I didn't yep. say I want to do clinics. Uh, the clinics kind of found me. So I'd been doing quite a few clinics in Australia before I moved back to the States. And then we moved back to the States. From those clinics, I had learned that a lot of people struggle with some really simple, basic stuff with horses just because they don't really understand how horses think. And so I thought, oh, I'll, I'll just, I'm going to start putting some, some videos on YouTube just to show people some simple stuff. I mean, basic, really, really simple stuff. Um, and I started doing that and putting them on Facebook. Facebook was just started at the time. It was probably a year or so old. And um, people wanted more and more stuff. And I, when you first, I don't know if it's the same now, but back then when you first start putting videos on YouTube, you can only put up to 10 minute videos. You can't put longer than 10 minutes until you've got your YouTube channel has over so many views. I guess they don't want, you know, three hours of your cat chasing a laser pointer up and down the hallway or something, you know? And so um, I needed, I want, <laughs> people wanted to see longer videos because I was taking in, you know, different problem horses, bucking and delusions and all sorts of stuff. And so I started making video clips of them while I was doing it. I had a guy working for me and he'd just take videos and I started posting them and people wanted to see long full length sessions and I couldn't do them on YouTube at the time. So I found a video hosting site that is a pay thing, you know? And so I put the videos on there and people would pay to, to watch them. And that was the, st that was the start of the whole, you know, that's mostly my big business now is online videos. And once again, I never said, Hey, I want to, I want to put videos online and have people pay from it. Just, I couldn't put longer videos on YouTube. And so I had to go somewhere else. And so that's, that's what I started doing. You know, I got back into the reining a bit too. You know, we I had some reining horses in training and going to shows, but, um, you know, it turned into a big part of what I was doing was the video stuff and, and the problem horse stuff, you know, the bucking and bolting and the rearing and all those sorts of things too. So I was doing those while I was, you know, getting back into the reining as well. Yeah. Nice. Um, so when you kind of moved back and you're doing all the problem horses, Oh, how do you see, <clears throat> so where you are now to where you were kind of just starting all that YouTube stuff, do you kind of look at that and go, there's so many things I could have done a bit differently or, if, or, or do you kind of look at it now and go, there's, it's just added more tools to my toolbox. Do you mean as far as training horses or as far as developing that business? Oh, sorry. As training horses. Oh yeah. Well, <laughs> you know, you always look back and, and go, yeah, I could have wish, you know, if you have a, you have a reining horse and then you sell it and then two years later it comes back or something rather you get it back and you go, Oh God, now I, now I know how to fix this bit. That I didn't know how to fix before. So yeah, I think you always look back and, and, um, you always look back and realize you could have done a better job. Then if, if you look back at a horse you trained three years ago and this, and there's nothing you would do differently, then you probably haven't learned anything new in the last three years. You're just repeating the same, the same thing. And I, you know, I think everybody, everybody that trains yep. horses would do that would, you know, look back and go, Oh yeah, I, 
I could have done that differently now. And then, and, and right now, whatever you're doing seems like it's working good, but five years from now, you'll look back and go, Oh yeah, I was messing that up too. Yeah. Um, that's just, you know, that's just how it is. I mean, you can't, there, there is no way that you'll ever know everything. So you got to realize you've just got to be confident in doing what you know now while keeping an eye out for something you don't know. You can't be closed to what I'm doing now is yep. the only thing I'm ever going to do, but you also can't be, uh, uh, gee, I'm messing it up. Uh, uh, you know, you, so there's, there's that level of confidence in your process and your program I think you've got to have, but you've also got to have an open mind to adding stuff to that program and, and morphing it into something better, which I think, you know, I think most people do that. Yeah. Yeah, true. But like, um, I remember watching some of your videos on, on your, um, subscription and there was that, the, I think it was the Andalusian, yep. the gray Andalusian that you had would, um, kind of, cause I remember you saying in one of your YouTube videos, or oh, was it about a month ago or so, how, you know, you've kind of changed a few things and you look at things a little bit differently. If you look back at that horse, what would you have done differently to help him Everything. if you had him now? <laughs> about about five okay. years ago. <laughs> so about five years ago, I was doing, you know, I was doing clinics in, you know, uh, Australia, Canada, New Zealand, the US, not many in the US. Uh, I was going to Europe once a year and doing clinics there. I was going to the UK once a year and doing clinics there. I'm like, this is working. And, and I was helping a lot of people with their horses and it seemed to be working. So I'm kind of, I was kind of getting to where I'm starting yep. to believe my own BS sort of thing, you know, like, um, and I'm, I'm still learning, yep. still, still learning stuff. But anyway, so Robin was going to buy, my wife, Robin was going to buy, uh, another reigning horse. And there was two that she was looking at and Martin Larkin had both of them actually. And one, he was this big doughy sort of gelding and looked like a pretty steady Eddie, you know? And then there was this other one he had, and he was this little yep. compact, little feely, little, oh God, he could do the cool stuff. But he was a bit weird about, yeah, horse name. You're talking about Sherlock? About some stuff, you know, they, Martin had trained, you know, he, 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 he rode like one of Martin's horses, so can do all the cool stuff, but he just used to spook at the judges chairs and was a bit inconsistent yep. that way. And, you know, the only reason he wasn't a level four horse is because you just couldn't get what he could do out of him and yeah so i said to robin buy that one because he was the same price as the big doughy gelding you know he was he was way cheaper than his talent level because i'm like yeah yep. you know martin's really really good at training rainers but you know the, the the problem solving stuff that's not necessarily his forte but i've got a i got a fair idea about that stuff by the horse i can fix that crap and so we got him and he was the I, I could not, I mean, the, the, the spooking at the judges chairs and that, that stuff went away, but he had a level of weirdness about him that I'd never encountered. And I said, well, I'm just going to go back and do all the groundwork and stuff I do. It'll be all fine. And that didn't help him at all. Probably made him a little bit worse. And so he right. really made me go, holy cow, that, that doesn't work. And so I stepped back from trying to change him. Robin kept showing him, um, but I wasn't trying to, I wasn't like, trying to change him but i was i i stepped back from trying to change him and you know i think robin ended up in the intermediate non-pro she ended up like fourth or fifth of the world that year on that horse 
she showed two horses quite a bit that year. Um, she was fourth okay. maybe on him and fifth on Petey, the other horse, the horse I showed at the World of Question Games. Um, but yep. yeah, he just had that level of weirdness. And so he made me look outside the box and I started looking. I always thought I was a bit of an outside the box looker, but I look way outside the boxes I've been looking in. And reading articles by kind of weird, crazy cat ladies, you might explain them as, you know, <laughs> you know, they don't really ride horses. They just hang out and they have them as pets and they love them or whatever. And I started reading some stuff about these things that horses do, tiny little things they do that show you that they're concerned that are so little, you might not even notice it. And so I started paying attention to those sorts of things with horses at clinics. And I, I kind of had an epiphany moment at a clinic in Texas in 2017, I, this lady had this Mustang and, and he's been out of, he's nine years old. He's been out of the wild for six years. Um, and he rides around fine, does the groundwork fine, but he just has this random bolting issue and they, they there's nothing that seems to trigger it. Like it's not one thing that triggers it. It's something, you know, he might get triggered by it. Something that yesterday was perfectly fine. It's just random. And, it was a three-day clinic and she, I had a morning group and an afternoon group at my clinics at the time. And she was in the morning group and we did some groundwork with him in the morning group, but I don't really remember what we did because it was, it was that not out of the ordinary. I don't remember. But the next day she came in and she was um, doing some right. groundwork with him and she was just going to walk down his side and ask him to disengage behind, just ask him to step over behind. And when she went to walk down there, he, he, she, well, she said to me, hey, can you help me over here? He's, he's starting to block me out with his head. And I said, oh, let me have a look at that. And she went to walk down his left side. And as he, as she did, he turned his head and blocked her. So he kind of kept her in front of his right eye, you know? And uh, I said, well, let me have a crack at that. So normally in the past, what I would have done if a horse blocked me out like that, I would have just slowly reached my right hand under his jaw and just moved his head back straight. And so changed eyes. So I'm in his right eye. I'm standing still. I just move his head. Now I'm in his left eye. And it would have went down that side and that, and I wouldn't have moved my feet because I was a believer of the whole, you, you know, whoever moves their feet first loses sorts of thing. You know, there's a winner and a loser in this, in this interaction. But some of this stuff I've been reading made me rethink yep. that. So instead of moving his head over, when I went to step down beside him and he blocked me with his head, I just stepped back to where I was. And I said, Hey, I see that concerns you a little bit. I dig it. And I stood there in front of him until he, I don't know, if he licked or chewed, he blinked, his ears started moving, whatever. And then I tried it again and he blocked me out. And when he blocked me out, I just stepped back to where I was and said, yep, I saw you. I saw you've got some concern there. I'll let you think about that for a minute. And I did that for five or 10 minutes. I don't know. And then after five or 10 minutes, I can now walk down the side of him. He doesn't block me out and I haven't done anything to him. I didn't train him. I didn't fix him. I didn't do anything. So then I thought, well, he's been, he's been ridden for six years. Obviously I can touch yep. him and he shouldn't be a problem. So I just went to put my hand on his neck. And as I did, his head raised up slightly and he stopped blinking. And as he did that, I took my hand away and stepped back away from him. And I stood there and waited for his head to lower again and for him to start blinking again. And then I repeated that. Oh, then I went back to the front. Then I walked down his side. He let me walk down the side. Then I went to touch him with his hand and his head raised up and he stopped blinking. So I stepped back, waited for that. And after five or 10 minutes, I can now walk from the front of him, walk down beside him. He doesn't block me out and I can touch him and he doesn't tense up at all. So then I thought, okay, he doesn't like the disengaging. You watch, I'll disengage him once and I'll go back to the front and he won't let me down the side. I asked him to disengage, which he did perfectly because he was perfectly well trained. And then I went back to the front 
And I walked down the side. He let me walk down the side. He let me disengage him. I went back to the front. I walked down the side. He let me walk down the side. He let me disengage him. I'm like, okay, well, I said to the lady, well, it's fixed. I don't know what I did because I didn't really do anything, but it's fixed. Here you go. So I handed it back to him and she said, what do you want me to do? And yep. I said, oh, just hang on to him for a minute and see what he does. And I went and helped somebody else. And about 10 minutes later, there's a collective <laughs> gasp from everybody in the arena. And I turned and looked and this horse has buckled at the knees and fallen to the ground and he's sleeping. Like he's on his belly with his knees buckled on him with his head straight up and with his nose in the dirt, snoring little dust clouds. And then he has a roll gets up, has a big old shake, and then boom, down he goes again, and he's out. And I said to the owner, is that normal? She said, I've had him for six years, and I've seen him lay down once. And it was way out in the pasture, and she said, I showed up wow. over at the fence, and he saw me, and he jumped up, but I'd never really seen him lay down. I'm like, well, that's interesting. And it was about 10.30 in the morning by about this time, and he slept till lunchtime, like just didn't move. And then she put him, we woke him up, and she put him away, and then the next morning she comes in for the morning group and she brings him in and she said, what do you want me to do? I said, well, just, just hang on to the end of the lead rope and just stand there, see what happens. After about 15 minutes, boom, down he goes again and he sleeps for four hours, unconscious. In the arena with the loudspeaker and had horses cantering wow. past him and all sorts of stuff. And I knew, I knew something happened. I didn't know what it was. that I knew I made a huge change in this horse by not doing anything, by not, well, not asking anything of him. All I did was communicate with him that I saw his concern. I didn't try to fix his concern. I didn't say, don't show me that concern. I didn't say, don't do that. I just said, I see your concern. Anyway, I came home from that clinic and I started looking up in the internet about horse sleeping habits. And I know that horses sleep standing up and laying down. But what I didn't know at the time is that horses need to lay down to get REM sleep. And we don't know what happens in horses if they don't get REM sleep. But we do know in humans, they can be either irritable or anxious. And so I think this horse had a level of anxiousness about him all the time that was there from not having any REM sleep. And I think he had no REM sleep because he didn't feel safe enough to lay down because he didn't have someone looking out for him. And I really think me letting him know that I noticed that little turn of his head and I honored it. He went, huh? Well, hell, you'll probably, you could probably, you notice the little things you could probably notice a saber tooth tiger sneaking up on us. I could have a sleep. Basically that's the short story of it. Um, and so, yep. Anyway, the, 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 the moral of the story is that was four years ago. He hasn't bolted once since. Wow. So that was the start of That's... the whole looking at things completely differently. Because up to that point in time, I'd been helping horses by training them. I'd been helping horses by doing things to them, telling them what to yep. do, telling them how to do things, correcting things. This was the first time I'd ever helped a horse where I didn't do anything except let him know I was listening, let him know I saw his concern. And so then I spent the rest of the year, so the rest of 2017, messing with stuff at clinics, you know, and it was a pretty humbling sort of year because I'm going to these clinics and people show up and they expect me to tell them the answer, either the people with the horses or, because I get quite a few spectators, I might have you know, 50 or a hundred spectators at some of these clinics, especially in Europe. And I spent the whole year telling people, I have no idea what I'm doing. Um, but I've got an idea, bear with me. 
And so the good thing about the clinics is, you know, if, if I go to Europe for two weeks, yep. I'll do five clinics in two weeks, Saturday, Sunday, then a midweek, then a Saturday, Sunday, then a midweek, and then a Saturday, Sunday. There's 12 horses at each one of those. So that's 60 horses in two weeks you get to mess with and see changes in them, you know. And so the whole of 2000 and, uh, yeah, 2017, yep. that's what I did the whole year. And at the end of that year, I said, I'm not doing any clinics next year. I'm going to step back from this till I figure this stuff out. Because I've, I've now got a fair idea of what's going on. And by the end of the year, I kind of, I kind of had some stuff figured out. But I'm like, okay, that's, I'm going to step back and not do any clinics next year and just let this stuff settle a bit. You know, I, I got a fair idea of what I'm doing and what works and stuff. I just got to kind of solidify it. And yeah, so I didn't do any clinics in 2018 and 2018 was the year that we did the world of question games. And I had decided to take the year off from the clinics before Robin said one night, Hey, you want to try and do WEG again? And, you know, because I, I couldn't have, I couldn't have done the whole WEG qualification and all that stuff if I was doing the clinics, because I, I wouldn't be home keeping the horses going and I wouldn't be around for all the qualifying shows and stuff. So yeah, it kind of worked out that those two things lined up, but yeah. So when yeah. you ask about, would I do anything different with that horse? I would do everything different with that horse these days. And it's, it really, um, yeah, really made me realize how, how, much I was missing with just the little information horses give you. And yeah, it was, it was pretty profound, but yeah. So I have a totally different outlook on things these days. And what I found is that when, what I found is a lot of, a lot of the things that you have to work on with horses are problems that come about because we don't see those little things. And so I think, you know, for a long time, I was really good at ignoring those little things those little stress indicators, they call them little levels of tension that they tell us about that aren't big enough to really see. I was really good at ignoring those, but then those levels of tension build into other things that are seeable and palpable and you can see them and feel them and you notice them. And then I think I got very good at, I got very good at fixing the problems. Yep. yep. What I realize now is I got very good at fixing the problems I was creating. And it wasn't just me. We all do it creating by not noticing these little things. So the horse training actually got easier. It's harder though, because you've really got to change your expectations and your judgments and your, basically your whole outlook on stuff. Um, you know, I, Robin bought a, a Rainer a few years ago who was, he was actually a smart spook out of Ebony Shines. So he's, you know, he's one oh, of those. Wow. And when, when we first got him, all he wanted to do was bite. Yep. He's real mouthy <laughs> and nippy and stuff, you know. And it was with him that I started, instead of correcting that, it was him. He was the first one I started. What would happen if I started to, when his mouth comes near me, instead of pushing it away or saying no, what if I just rubbed him softly on the muzzle? What if I engage with him? And he was the one that taught me that horses that are nippy and mouthy and all that sort of stuff, they're not trying to bite you. They're like a little kid saying, hey, dad, hey, dad, hey, dad. Hey dad, hey mum, hey mum. And if you can engage with those horses, it's so it's a level of anxiety they have. And they're basically saying, Hey, you know, you're trying to put the saddle on and their head comes around, they're trying to nip you. Yep. They're not saying, I want to bite you. They're saying, Hey, hello, I'm up here. Um, are you gonna say hi before you put the saddle on, sort of thing? You know, and I, 
I've recently had a, a girl on my Facebook page ask a question about this. And she said, well, yeah, but what I'm trying to do, I'm trying to walk up and touch my horse on the shoulder and his head comes around and he, you know, I want to touch him on the shoulder. And I said, I said, have you ever had a conversation with a man? And while you're having that conversation with the man, you're kind of thinking, hello, my eyes are up here. You know, that conversation. I said, it's the same thing with the horse. This horse is trying to have a conversation <laughs> with you. And you're like, no, I want to, I want to touch you on the, on the chest. Well, she would want to touch him on the shoulder, but I want to touch you in a certain part, but I don't, I don't want to engage with you. Um, and she went, Oh, I get it now. But really I've, I've found, and not, and I've put some videos on YouTube on this and I've had hundreds and hundreds of people tell me I've got this horse and he's been mouthy for the last six years. And I started doing that. And after about a month, he stopped being mouthy and it's, and it's, so it's really, you really got to change the way you look at stuff. And, um, I've found that there's yeah, so many of the problems that we have, like horses that are mouthy and nippy and all that sort of stuff. They're not problems to fix. They're the communication the horse is giving us. And if we can deal with it in a certain way, in the right way, it goes away. You don't have to fix it. It's, it, it's me, you're meeting a need of theirs. And it's, it really makes me think how, you know, horses are mammals and all mammals are social creatures and they're very, very social. And if you can start to just let them know, there's an, you know, there's an old Ray Hunt saying, they know when you know, and they know when you don't. And I used to think that saying meant they know when you know what you're talking about and they don't know, they know when you don't know what you're talking about. You know, they can tell a counsel from someone who knows what they're doing sort of thing. And then a couple of years ago, I read an article by someone who was around yeah. Ray Hunt a lot. Um, and I thought it was Joe Walter that wrote it, but I was talking to Joe a year or so ago and he didn't write the article. So it wasn't him, but they said, when you're around a horse, you need to know what his muzzle's doing, what his nostrils are doing, what his ears are doing, what his eyes are doing, what his lips are doing, what his back's doing, what his neck's doing, what his breathing's doing, what his tail's doing. Is it up? Is it down? Is it clamped? Is it loose? Is it tight? What his feet are doing? Is he standing square or is he standing, you know, offset? You need to know all those things because they know when you know and they know when you don't. So they know when you know all that stuff, you know, they know when you're aware of all that stuff and they know when you're not aware of all that stuff. And I've found that just being able to be around horses and the whole time you're around them, you're aware of all that stuff. They are so much more relaxed, you know, because if you think about they're a herd animal and what keeps them safe in the herd, it's not, oh, there's some young geldings who do push-ups and go to karate classes and they're going to protect me from the saber-toothed tigers. You know, that's, it's not a... The, the safety in the herd is not a physical thing like, yeah, they're going to fight the bad guys off. It's a, it's an awareness thing. The more horses there are, the more eyes and ears there are to detect danger. And horses are always present and aware of stuff. And when we're around them and we're not aware, we're on our phone, we're in our head, you go to saddle them up and their head comes around to say hello and you don't even see it and you walk past it and chuck the saddle on, all those things tell them we're not aware. And so you can either get one or two outcomes from that. You, you tend to find horses are anxious because they, they're always looking here and there because they've got to look out for themselves or they can tend to go inside their heads a bit. They can tend to get a bit shut down sort of thing. So they just block the world out. And a lot of, I've really, and Sherlock was one of those. Sherlock was just really in his head, very obedient, very well-trained, does the reining really, really well. And, and the problem we had with Sherlock is he's always got this level of tension that's he's he's totally functional but when you start running say really fast circles he might bounce his hind feet together a couple of times in a circle 
you know, and I know Robin scored oh, uh, right. a 70 and a half several times where he bounced his hind feet together twice in his right large fast circle and twice in his left large fast circle. So she's going to be a four and a half, you know, the stops and the turns and the fast and the slow, all yeah. the hard stuff is there. Um, the other thing you do, like in the middle, when you ask him to turn, he kind of sits there and gets kind of tight and then leaps into it. Like he can turn a million miles an hour. You know what Martin's horses turn like? And he stops like a, a circle. Like he's just, he breaks in the yep. back and he's just, you know, his head's between his front legs, not because it was put there. He just, he's so balanced, you know? And so Sherlock had this level of tension that got in the way of all the good stuff, you know? So it wasn't like he needed to learn the reining to do any better. He, he needed to right. have that let go. So, you know, so he was, he was quite shut down, quite in his head. Um, and so, like I said, when you, when you don't, uh, with those horses, when you yep. don't socially interact them with them like that, they either can get anxious or they can just get a bit shut down and in their heads. And then you have to deal with the fallout of the, the shutdown. And, and Sherlock was an extreme example. I mean, a lot of horses that are highly functional uh, have a level of, of shutdown. Um, but yeah, so my, you know, these days that's my, that's my goal. Robin's just bought a new reigning horse. Uh, he's a, he's a bad motor scooter. He's a, he's a, um, he's a spook's got a whiz out of a shining spark mare. That's out of a dual ray mare. And he's very, very cool. He's a four year old stud, um, can do all the stuff. He's deaf. Um, and he's, he's quite shut down, but functionally shut down. Doesn't have that level of tightness that, 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 um, Sherlock had at least in the weird way, but he's, he's quite lazy. Like the guy we bought him from, yep. they had him on like racehorse food to give him enough energy to, to, to run fast enough to run and stop and circle him. But when you lead him, you would lead like a donkey when you ride him around, just come on, giddy up, giddy up, giddy up. But if you turn him, turn him loose in the arena, right. he runs around like a Arab. And if you put him on the hot walker, so we've got one of those panel walkers. So not the one you're tied to, but yeah, the one wow. between the panels, you put him on that. And he's at the front of it, bouncing up and down like a lamb in springtime. You know what I mean? So he has lots of available springy athletic energy. But when he's around humans, he doesn't. And so I've been back to the beginning with him. And we've been starting to try to get him out of that. And, you know, I think I'm going to get him out of it. Who knows what we're going to have when we get him out of it? Because now he's really spooky and jumpy now, where he was quiet as a lamb when we first got him two or three, two couple of months ago. So I've now got to work through all that stuff, but I think like he's an yeah. open horse. If he can have the level of springiness and athletic ability and energy that he, that he has when he's turned loose when you're riding him, but he doesn't need to be trained any better. You know I mean? He can, he's like Sherlock. He, he, he yeah. steers great. He runs fast. He slows down. He changes leads. Good. He runs and stops. So cool. He turns cool. I maybe want to, I maybe want to mess with his right turn just a little bit, but apart from that, I've got no complaints. Um, but I want to get him to where you ask him to go. And, whew, it just, it's there. Like he go, what he does, he goes physically, but he doesn't go mentally. He doesn't, he doesn't think go. You're going to pedal him yeah, like right. a bike the whole time. But when it's his idea to go, holy cow, he's got, yeah, he's a phenomenal athlete. So that's, that's where I'm at with that right now. And, you know, Robin wants to show in all the, the big derbies next year in the non-pro and um, you know, with the whole COVID thing, I don't think I'm going to be traveling overseas at all. So what I'm probably going to do is, you know, we'll go on quite a few road trips and I'll schedule clinics 
in the states between here and where we're going and on you know maybe there and on the way home stuff like that so we might spend a year driving around doing clinics i'm pretty sure i won't be going overseas <laughs> i know i was i was hopefully gonna go back to sean florida's place but yeah I don't so want you've to been to Sean's COVID's today? still pretty rampant over there. And the whole quarantine. Yeah, I spent three months with Sean and that was that was um such an eye-opener. So so much stuff happened that I just did not expect to have happened because of um, you know, being able having the opportunity to go and ride with that type of person who's the number one in the sport. And the, the amount of opportunities he gave me, like he had me riding 10 horses a day, which I did not expect at all. I was hoping yeah. to ride maybe one or two, but just watch him and learn heaps. Um, but he put me on horses and his whole family are like the most humblest, nicest people I've, I've ever met. And it wasn't yeah, something picked, I kind of expected. Yeah. It was, yeah. So it kind of just, it showed me that it's, yeah, it showed me that you can yeah, be the Sean best in the game the, and be the most humblest person in the world too. Met. He's the happiest. Yeah, he's he's they're very very cool people. Yeah, so just kind of being with that, seeing you know, spending time with Sean, and that changed my kind of mental side of things too. Kind of you know, you didn't have to have a way about you if you're at the top you're just a normal yeah if you if you met him Um, if you met him outside of the horses you wouldn't know you wouldn't know what he does you know you wouldn't know who he is no no not at all you you just think he's just another person just going about his business like everyone else does um yeah and just just the way his whole family looked after me over there it was just just kind of mind blowing. Yeah, it was really, really good. So I'm we'll hoping there to go back, but I don't know when. We'll see what happens. Yeah. <laughs> Our summertime. It was. It was. Oh God. <laughs> I think it well, took me probably about a month to get used to the weather. <laughs> well, just after I left. And they sent me photos. Yeah. Lucky's got an indoor, but they sent so me photos of how hot and, the snow was. I bet it was over hot there. and sticky when you were there, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. Very hot and sticky. It just goes in yeah. and comes I've out. never drunk so much water in my life. Yeah. No. <laughs> I remember I did it's a. just, yeah, I pretty much have to wash your clothes in almost. The Mount every day. Rodeo Arena. And I didn't leave the arena all day, and they kept just. It was hot as hell and sticky as hell. And they kept bringing me water. And I drank water all day long and didn't leave the arena to pee. I didn't, I didn't have to pee it out. I just, it just sweated out of me. Yeah, wow. <laughs> oh, that's crazy. Uh, um, yeah, so talking about Sherlock, it, I was lucky enough to go over and ride with Martin for a little bit. Um, and Sherlock was in his barn. And... There was something about him. I didn't oh, know really? what it was. That's I just, awesome. He was kind of my favorite horse in the barn. I just, I, yeah, I, <laughs> I couldn't, I couldn't put my finger on why I liked him, but I just, for some reason, I really liked him. And then when I saw that you guys had bought him, I was like, oh, there's that horse. So it's kind of been really exciting watching the journey with him and 
how things like the yeah, things that you're getting into with him is just basically kind of been hasn't awesome. been ridden for f- four years. So it must have been 2016. Robin showed him a lot. Basically, hasn't been ridden for four years. Um, he got ridden for a, about three weeks um, two years ago, uh, about ha- partway through the qualifying process for the World Equestrian. I think we were qualified for the World Equestrian Games. And my horse started coming up sore. And, you know, with all that FEI stuff, you cannot, you know, there's, you, there's, you've got to be careful what fly spray you put on a horse in case that they test positive for something. You know what I mean? And so Sherlock had been on the walker every day, so he was fit enough. And I thought, well, I'm going to, I'm going to dig him out and, and see what happens. And I read him for about three weeks. He took him to a show and I was like, nah, poor guy. He's not ready yet. He's still got some flashbacks for that. So yeah, so he got ridden for a little while about two years ago, but I've only just start back started riding him probably two or three weeks ago. Does he feel different? As in, like, like mentally, he feels kind of a, a little bit more happier, or uh, well, he you can know, I've deal got with certain situations all the easier. Stuff with him, not undo his training, but undo his thoughts about the riding. So, you know, I. All I've been doing with him is, well, I haven't, I haven't, I haven't even steered him yet. All I've been doing is having him go forward. And so what I've been really working on a lot, and I really found this stuff helps um, shut down sort of horses. And usually horses are shut down because they are very, very sensitive and they can't control what happens to them. It's too much for them. And so they just kind of go inside and like Sherlock, he was real, like real, like you'd think he was lazy and you kick him and he doesn't go sort of thing, but really that's because he's super sensitive. So what I do a lot on the ground these days with horses is like teaching them to lead beside me. I'll teach them to follow my energy. So I'll start standing beside him and I will think about moving forward. Sounds a bit weird, but I'll think about moving forward. And then I will, instead of standing kind of slouched, I will just kind of, raise my energy up. Like if you were slouched in a chair and you thought, oh, I'm going to get up. The first thing you would do is kind of start to straighten up, but not get up. So I'll be standing beside him and I'll, I'll do that. And then I'll lean very slightly forward. Yep. And these are like, I'm doing these things for like three seconds at a time, like real slow. And then if he doesn't come, I'm going to turn and look back towards his hind end, turn away from him, not towards him. And then if he doesn't come, I'll take the little stick or whatever and start to swing it out away from him. Don't touch him with it yet. And then slowly get closer until you get closer and they take a step and then you stop and you start all over again. And he's got to where when I go to lead him now, I just have to think about going and oh, his feet start going. And so I started doing that under saddle. When I first started back riding him, um, I would just, and I still do it every day. I hop on and I've got a little dressage whip. I hop on and I sit there and then I, I look like out between his ears, look where I want to go. And then I think about, and this is something Mark Rasher does, think about projecting my energy forward. You're not leaning forward. You're not doing anything. It's, it's like the martial artists call it your chi, your life energy. And I know it sounds a bit weird, but it's working. Think about projecting that forward for about three seconds. And then I will like grow a bit taller, like bring my energy up a little bit without actually doing anything to my seat for about three seconds. And then I'll start to push with my seat for about three seconds. And then I'll take my legs and slowly bring them in till they're just touching his side. Like I, like I, 
you could trap a fly between my leg and his sides, but not kill it. And then if he hasn't gone by then, then I just take the whip out to the side and I wave it for about three seconds right, without okay. touching him. And then after three seconds, it just starts to touch him, just like a little, little tap. And if he goes forward, I let it all go and I go again. So it took me a, took me a week before I picked up a trot. Um, and there's no steering involved, but now he's got to where I can be sitting on him and I can kind of look, look ahead and bring my energy up and oh, he starts walking off. And what I've noticed with him is his ears are up. He's looking out, you know, he's looking out through the bridle, his ears are up and he walks with some energy. He's always been really tight walking and trotting. Like if you lunge him or trot him beside you or whatever, he would always, his hind foot lands about six inches before the track of his front foot. Okay. And like he's real short, like that way. But if you turn him loose in the arena or you pony him on off right. another horse, he trots like a trotter. And he really swings his legs. So he just, anything about a human asking him to do something, he has this tension about him. But only, and it's a little bit same with the, the new horse, Ray, that the spook's got a whiz. Yeah. And so I'm trying not to do, I'm trying not to ask him for anything under saddle that he's been asked for before or, or ask in a way he's been asked before. I want to basically start afresh like you've never been ridden. And so if I, you know, if I rode him around and pushed him up on the bridle, he'd go, oh, not this crap again. And you just go back to, so I'm really being careful. You know, it's been four years since he's been ridden. So I'm, I'm not in a hurry to, I'm not in a hurry to get him to think about what he was doing before. You know, he don't, I'm sure if, if I wanted to, I could run him and stop him and spin him and run him in a circle and change leads on him right now. It wouldn't be a problem. He'd still have that level of tension. So I'm not really interested in all the raining stuff with him right now. I'm, I'm trying to basically have him learn a new way to be under saddle. But anyway, is he different? Uh, yeah, his his ears are up more, and he kind of sticks his nose out a little bit. He'd always, when you were riding him, he just kind of bridled up and was like in this little shape sort of thing, and right there. Um, he's yeah, he's a little more fluid with his legs. His his yep. ears work quite a bit more. He breathes a lot more. Like when we first got him, he did not lick and chew. When you wanted to put the bit in his mouth, you had to pry his mouth open to put it in. You had to pry it open. He was just yeah, real wow. dry, and, and so you know when horses are in that shutdown sort of a state they're in a, a constant state of um you know in the constant basically in fight flight or freeze and it's a freeze state you know when a horse when a horse goes into any of those states let's say flight they clamp their lips you know because horses are nose breathers not mouth breathers so in order for a horse to be as aerobically as efficient as possible they clamp their lips shut so that they can run away from the from the saber tooth tiger or whatever, you know, and there's a lot of research these days in racehorses about bits. Cause if the bit breaks the lip seal, so if, the, if their mouth slightly open when they're running, they cannot, they're not as aerobically as efficient as if their mouth was clamped shut. Well, anyway, his mouth was clamped shut all the time. He didn't have to be running. His mouth was clamped shut. So he didn't lick yeah, and right. chew. He didn't, <clears throat> he didn't make that noise under saddle. Anyway, since I've been back riding him, he, he licks and chews and does the whole, a lot no i wouldn't say a lot but but quite a bit so you know i'm not in a hurry to the, the raining awesome. stuff you know craig schmersel had him as a two-year-old and then martin had him after that so i know he's he's not going to come untrained the thing i want to do is stay him or stay away from having him think any of that yep. stuff's going to happen i'm going to have to sneak that back in him and talking about him this is not saying that craig or martin did anything wrong Okay, they've trained hundreds and hundreds of horses that didn't end up like this. Sherlock 
I, I, I'm starting to realize now ones like Sherlock are super, super sensitive. And they, a horse that's super sensitive can deal with that super sensitive in one or two ways. They can be anxious as all hell and snorty and flighty. You know, like a lot of, you know, think about a, a really snorty Arab sort of thing. They can go that way or they can go the other way. And Sherlock went the other way. And so it's not, you know, it's not, not that anybody did anything wrong with them or was nasty to them or anything like that. They just got yeah, right, okay. like every other horse, but they're, they're the, the outliers. And so, you know, I would have, if I had a trainer, might've done the same thing at the time too. And I would not have realized what, what was going on. But, but the thing is having him made me realize yep. how much, how many horses actually have that. And so doing clinics all around the place, it's been really, really good to, um, to understand how that works and help a lot of horses. Cause a lot of, you know, I don't have, I don't do reigning horse clinics. I rarely ever have a reigning horse at the clinic. A lot of my, all sorts of different breeds and disciplines and stuff, but it's very, very prevalent. You know, if, they, if they're either outwardly anxious or they're, they're inside themselves. Well, yeah, well, that's true. Um, since, since I've been kind of, you know, watching the story with Sherlock and a couple of other horses, like with the Mustang and that, that you, you've um, kind of dealt with, it's funny, once I've learned from watching you, there's so many things that I've like just, just simple things like waiting and, you know, watching. And um, I had one horse that every time you throw the saddle on, he'd just get really tight lipped. So I had to kind of help him deal with just that. But, you know, things like that, you never noticed before, but then as soon as you notice it, it just opens up a whole new, you know, like, like you say, you've gone down this rabbit hole and it's, it's like probably, one of the best journeys to follow someone with because there's so much yeah you know it's crazy you, um, you know i had a, started a filly here last year that was really feely you know she's by a son of play gun and out of a smart chicolina mare and she was kind of cutterish acting you know kind of really bright-eyed bushy-tailed and really feely and has a bit of an attitude too and i had her full sister the year before that i started and i wasn't paying attention to all those little things some of them but not all of them and that full sister was a cow of a thing and this one would have this one would have been a cow of a thing if i'd have treated the, right. uh, the same way as the other one and i started noticing all the littlest things and her first saddling was the best first saddling of any horse i've ever had in my entire life but it took quite a while but you know just like you go to put the saddle pad on and as you're putting it on you're not looking at their body you're looking at their head and if their head raises up you know just the tiniest little bit and they stop blinking, you hold the saddle pad there, wherever it was on their back and you wait for them to yep. start blinking. And as soon as they blink, you take it away. And basically you're, you're communicating to them. Not only did I see when you tensed up, I saw when you relaxed again, I noticed all that stuff and it's, and it's not training. It's just letting them know that you're aware of those little things. And yeah, she, she, uh, yeah, she's going to be a really cool horse. And, and, and like I said, I, she'd have been a, She'd have been a, a problem horse oh, five years ago. She'd been a real problem horse, but two years ago, or that was probably two years ago, three years ago, she'd have been a, a bit of a problem horse, but two years ago she wasn't. She was really sweet. So yeah, it's, once you start noticing all that stuff, you tend to find that a lot of the, the things you'd have to, the problems you'd have to solve later on aren't there. And they're problems that every horse has. So we just think it's a horse problem, but what really it comes from, um, 
it comes from things that we don't notice and it causes a level of tension and then you deal with the the fallout of that tension uh, it is a funny story so couple i you know a lot of times at clinics and i've always done this with horses starting them or whatever when i first start riding them in the arena i don't steer them i let them go wherever they want to go and if they go to the gate then i start doing whatever it is i'm going to do at the gate it might be flexing it might be disengaged you might be walking circles whatever and then when they walk away from the gate you leave them alone and after a while they're not attracted to the gate and at the end of 2017 i was doing a clinic in uh Caboolture in queensland at, at the queensland state equestrian center and the last group of the afternoon was all under saddle it was a it was a, a ridden only clinic which means i'm not going to do groundwork if you need to do that do it outside then come in and one girl got on a horse and it was fine but these other two were winning and carrying on and you know, looking back at the barn and Winnie and, and you know, they're going to go to the gate. And normally I would have done what I had done in the past. And I said, here, I've got an idea for you girls hop on, let your horse go wherever they want to go. And if they're looking off to the left, if both ears are off to the left, just pick up on your right rein. And when they flick their ear to the right, let go. No matter if they don't turn right, no matter if they're ripping the rein out of your hand, I don't care. I just want you to drop that rein when the ear flicks over there because that's when their thoughts go over there and and it's not so much about fixing something it's letting them know that you noticed when their thoughts changed you get what i'm talking about did that for about five minutes on both of them and five minutes later they're yep. both walking around the yep. arena not looking at each other not attracted to each other not attracted to the gate and i'm like holy cow that worked so then when i was training running horses i had a young uh fellow named chewy who worked for me and uh, when I stopped training outside horses, Chewy took over my barn and, and Chewy's uh, now doing the reining and doing a really good job. I think two years ago, he was the leading um, level one rider in the NRHA, won the most money for the year. But anyway, so um, I hadn't seen Chewy for yeah, a while. Well. Anyway, I, I was riding around with him one day, maybe at a show. And I said, hey, I've got to tell you this thing. He's, I said, what I've been doing with horses, if I steer them or whatever, and they steer, but their inside ear doesn't flick towards me. I keep steering until that ear flicks. And when that ear flicks, I'll let go. It's amazing how well it works. He goes, yeah, he said, I, I said a show last week and I had Andrea ride one of my horses and he was riding him around and he'd steer him and then he'd spin him. And the horse looked like he steered really well, but Andrea would spin him. And, and I said, why did you spin him? He goes, because his ear didn't come towards me. <laughs> And then I was talking to Bub Poplin not long after that. So Bub's a trainer from Colorado. Oh, wow. And I was riding around at a show talking. Oh, this was at the, this is when we're trying to qualify for WEG. So this is 2018. Yep. And I was in Arizona at the Arizona Running Classic. Or oh, what's it called now? Uh, used to, I forget what it's called now. Anyway, uh, riding around at this show and I'm, I'm riding around talking to Bub. And he said that once I was telling him that story about, yeah, I figured out this steering thing. And he goes, well, once a year, Sean Florida comes out to Colorado and we do a benefit clinic for the youth or something or other. And I always ride with him. He rides with me the day before. And anyway, he's riding one of my horses and he's steered this horse and it didn't, and it steered and then he, he kept spinning. And I'm like, what do you, what do you, why you, he looked like he steered fine. What are you doing? He goes, I'm waiting for his inside ear to flick towards me. <laughs> and so this is something, something I discovered on my own with problem horses. And then <laughs> I'm talking to two other people and the two leaders in the and I'd never heard of that as far yep. as with reining horses. I'd, I'd never, ever heard anybody talk about that. Um, and then Sean and Andrea are talking about it. And then, so I was telling Joe Schmidt about this and Joe, you've ridden with Joe. So Joe's one of those guys. 
he never stops searching for answers. And like, if Joe rings me up, I know it's going to be a 45 minute conversation. He'll be like, Hey, Hey, Hey dude, I was riding his horse the other day and I was riding along and my left foot was like <laughs> three eighths of an inch behind his girth. And my right foot was here, but his left ear was doing this. And then his right foot did this. And the rain had this much, you know, like, you know, how technical he gets, which is great. Um, and he started messing with like, say yep. in the round yep. pen, when he asks him to go, he says, I'll ask him to go to that outside ear flicks forward. I won't ask him to go and, and reward because the inside ear one is going to be listening to you. Like, what are you doing over there? He yeah, says, right. I'll ask him to go to the outside ear flicks forward. So he's been doing it for quite a while. And here a while ago, he's telling me yep. in the rundowns now, when I ask him to go, I don't stop asking when they go. I wait for those ears to flick forward. And he says, dude, dude, he says, it's, it's the most amazing thing. It feels like my horse grows two inches in the withers. When their ears flick forward, they get taller <laughs> because they've driven instead of them just going wow. forward, they've decided to go forward. Their mind's going forward. And he says, they, they stride deeper up underneath and their front end comes up like a boat. And he says, I've never had my horses stop that good. And it's, and it's like, Whoa, yeah, that's so cool. So it's not different. You know, the, wow. the, the okay. it's, it's, you know, I think, I think there's two parts to that. One is you are getting them to think forward, not just go forward. But the other part is you stop asking when they do think forward, which means you're telling them, I am so perceptive. I can tell where your mind is and when it changes. And I think for me, that's the hugest part of having horses be relaxed these days is being able to communicate to them that you can basically read their mind. Like you can tell where their mind is and you show them by your actions that you can tell when they change focus. And that seems to give them a, a, a sense of safety that, yep. uh, that just makes them completely different than I've had horses feel before. Yeah. And do you think a lot of that's come from, cause I know you've done, um, oh, I've heard you speak about it on other podcasts, how you've kind of done stuff to work on yourself. All of that has kind of helped look a little bit deeper or yeah, kind I, of look at things yeah, a little so bit different within the horses too. 2018, I took the year off from doing, doing, um, doing uh, clinics and it was during that year I was at a horse expo in um, Madison, Wisconsin. And I don't know if you ever, have you ever heard of Barbara Schulte? So Barbara uh, is a, a cutter. I've she's heard the, the name, Cowboy yes. Hall of Fame. She's won the Futurity. She's won the NCH Super Stakes. She's won the NCH Derby. And she had been training horses. And uh, then she went to Florida to a place called the Human performance institutes where they train Olympic athletes, the mental part of Olympic athlete training. And she went, she'd been training cutting horses for a few years, went there. And then okay. a year after that won the super stakes and the Derby. And then two years after that won the maturity. And it was all because of that. Um, and so she, she coaches a lot on the mental side of things these days. And I was talking to her at a horse expo about something and, and she mentioned the name Brene Brown. She said, you ever heard of Brene Brown? And I said, no. And she said, you need to look her up. And so I come home and I look up Brene Brown and I got one of Brene Brown's audiobooks. And in this audiobook, she was saying that you cannot selectively suppress emotions. She said, if you suppress the lower ones, you automatically suppress the higher ones. And I thought, well, that's interesting. I've never really thought of that. And I know, you know, like 
men growing up in Australia in my generation, you're not supposed to show fear. You're not supposed to cry. You're not supposed to, in my family, we didn't show grief. You know, you go to a funeral like, oh, well, he died. Off you go. And so I thought, I know, I know lower parts are suppressed, but I've never really thought about, could I experience <laughs> yep. more joy or happiness? That never really thought of that. So I started going and seeing a, a therapist about that. And that, that, I think that was a big part of the whole, the whole journey, because I figured out from that, that I was very shut down. I wasn't that unsimilar to Sherlock and it basically took a shutdown horse to show me how shut down I was. And you, it makes you look at the world a certain way. And, and you kind of have this, this barrier of energy around you that kind of keeps people at bay. And you do kind of do the same thing with horses too. And so you're not really paying attention to those little things. And um, yeah, so I, I think it's, a, it's the same with, with people now. I feel, you know, I feel a lot more connected with horses when I'm working with them. It's the same thing with people. I feel a lot more connected to people when I'm talking to them. Um, you know, it's a lot easier to really maintain eye contact and stuff like that. And I, and I didn't realize that I never used to do that till I started doing it. It's like, Oh, this feels weird. And uh, yeah, so the, the, yeah, the, the two things for me go hand in hand. Right, okay. What I found is that something that really holds us back in our horse training is how we view the world. And, and you know, the, the stuff that you've got, you know, inside you has a lot to do with that. A number of years ago, I got a book, I'm big into books, but a couple of years ago, I got a book called um, Backbone. It was like a men's self-help sort of a book. But in that book, he said that a lot of men spend all their life trying to get four things at the same time. Like if I can get these four things, I'll be happy. Uh, material wealth. So, you know, you've got enough money to, to do whatever you want to do. Um, vocational success. So that might be, yep. if you're a horse trainer, that might be win the fatuity. That might be win this, win that, whatever. Um, health and love. So vocational success, material wealth, health and love. You could have, you, most men think if I could have them all at the same time, I'd be happy then. And they spend all their life trying to do it. And most men never, ever get, all four of those things at the same time, you know, they might have vocational success, but they don't have quite as much money as they want, or they've got money, but they're still not the top of the dung pile of whatever it is their job is, or they don't have health or they, you know, they're single, whatever. But he said, what, what really you've, what happens when men get to that point yep. is when they do get all four of those, if you ever get lucky enough to get there is you realize, huh, the view from up here is any different. Like I, I thought I'd, I thought I'd feel different. And I think I see this quite a bit in the horse industry of all different disciplines is people who get to the, the top of the pile and they're very successful and they're like, they seem to be kind of bitter. Sean Florida is definitely not one of them, by the way, but I think there are some of them in, in all disciplines and industries, not just, you know, not just one particular discipline. But, um, and so this guy goes on to say, he says, you, you know, in order to be truly yeah. happy and complete or whatever, you've got to have three things, not those four things. You could have three things. You've got to have a purpose. Like what is your, what's your reason for being here? Why, what's your goal? What's your job here on earth? Uh, number two is you have to have a deep and authentic spiritual belief. And it doesn't necessarily mean that you are religious, but you've got to have a, a deep belief in something bigger than yourself that connects you to the rest of the world. It's basically. And then the third one is you've got to get rid of your bullshit. If I can swear on your podcast. Um, and so a lot of that, a lot of that therapy stuff that I'd done is getting rid of yep. the, 
getting rid of the BS. And, and it's amazing <laughs> how much of that stored up childhood stuff and life stuff that we have that actually determines our training style, determines how you train horses. And when you start to unra unravel some of that stuff, you start to train horses well, a bit differently for the better. It, that's such a good point because I've probably the last couple of months I've instead of when a horse would do something I'd kind of react to it instead of responding to it in a way that I'd be like you know you're a prick why are you doing this for I'd kind of look at it now and go he's just asking me a question or I've I've, I've asked him a question and this is his answer and since I've changed my mentality of looking at it like that it's changed how I deal with everything even like not just with horses but with people hey Matt, too and it's just everything's so much more relaxed can you reach around and give yourself process. a pat on the back yep because because that's some people never get to that point some people never okay. get to that that point to where they can go all this horse is doing right now is feedback yep. on what's going on it's not it's not good or bad i mean even shakespeare said nothing is good or bad only thinking makes it so you know um you know, it, it's, it's not good or bad. It's, it's valuable information. What am I going to do with that information? You know, instead of, instead of getting mad about what they're doing or upset or any of those things, you kind of go, okay, that's, that's good information. And then you can, you can process it without that, without that emotion attached to it, you know, without whatever, whatever emotion you've attached to it, you know? Um, yeah, you can, you can, I think it helps you figure out what to do rather than just react like you said just react to it because if you react to it usually there's probably an emotional attachment to it and you're probably going to be too quick to you know whatever i know chewy that used to work for me he's been he's such a he's such a friendly guy he's you know when he first started going to the running shows he befriended everybody so everybody now knows chewy so he you know he's got all the good he's got all the best guys in the world on his side sort of thing and i forget who he was riding with here yep. a while ago and they told him, however fast you're moving your hand, go half as fast. And then when you get that done, however fast you're moving it then, go half as fast as that. Just slow yep. down. Slow everything down. You know, and you can't slow down if you're mad. That's exactly right. And now <laughs> hindsight's a good thing because when I was riding and training with Rob Lawson, he always used to tell me that the slower you go about something, and, the you know, stuff you get like that. It's, it's... Now I understand yeah, that. You know, stuff like that is. Um, <laughs> Whereas before I was going. Really, really hard to understand until you experience so... it a few times. And you're like, holy cow, that was so much easier than the way I've been doing it forever. And, you know, it's, it's, it's it's hard to to make that leap to take that step in, into that <laughs> you know trying that sort of thing but once you experience it you kind of can't go back it's almost like this whole paying attention to these little things these horses tell you once you once you see that you can't unsee it you can't go oh yeah that's all bunk i'm just going to keep doing what i was doing you it it kind of and i and i really think it almost changes yep. who you are as a person because you'll find yourself being more observant, you know, it's, it's a bit about part of it is empathy is putting yourself in another person or animal's shoes or whatever, you know, and I think you tend to, 
start to do it like you said you're doing it with more with people and stuff you know what i mean it's I, I, for me for me doing that with horses was the first place i started doing it i'm still working on it with people but uh you know doing it with horses was the first place i started doing it and now it's a bit of a still a work in progress of course but <laughs> um yeah at least i'm aware of it yeah yeah well that that's probably the the once you become aware of it, then yeah, you can certainly. change it or do something about it. Um, okay, so let's take a left turn in this yep. podcast and let's talk about WEG for a second. So you've been there twice now. Um, yeah, they were both, both awesome that experiences would have been an awesome for probably experience. two different reasons. Um, the first one, 2010, probably some of the, you know, apart from it being WEG, the be- one of the best parts of that was we had a, a host, uh, we had a team hotel. So the show jumpers and the eventers and the vaulters and the dressage and everybody was in the same hotel, which what didn't happen in Tryon. We were, we were all scattered all around the world. You know, we, we had to go over to like, you know, we're friends with Brett Parbury. We had to go over and find the dressage barn to say day to Brett. We didn't stay in the hotel. Um, and so at the 2010, yeah, that, that the host hotel, the first night we get there, right. most of the other teams were there and like, you know, uh, Martin and Shauna had been overseas and Robin and I had been overseas. And so we didn't know most of them and Warren Backhouse is on the team and he probably didn't know a lot of them either because you just don't get that crossover at events in Australia. And we showed up to the hotel thinking, oh, we're going to be the redheaded stepchildren of this thing. They're going to look down their noses at us thinking, oh, these bloody half-assed cowboys, you know. Nothing could be further from the truth. We shrock into the hotel there and they're all out by the pool having a barbie like, oh, the rain is here. Come out here. Sit down. Hey, tell us about what you do. How do you get them to do that? How do you get them to do this? I mean, it was, it was cool. <laughs> really, really cool. And then, you know, like the we first day we competed, they all came. They didn't have it last week, but at that previous week they had uh, an athlete stand where you don't need a ticketed seat to get in there and it was right by the in gate and so we had all the when we the, when we competed there in in kentucky you know we had the vendors and the dressage people and the show job and stuff came along to cheer us along it was such a really cool team atmosphere um then we had the opening ceremonies that we marched in i think there was like thirty thousand people at the opening ceremonies so we get to march in the opening ceremony that was cool. Uh, got to see Muhammad Ali drive around there in a powder blue 1965 convertible Cadillac, which was very cool. Um, and so there were things like that at the the first WEG that were were really cool. And it was really organised. It was you know you know in a facility that's permanent there. Try on was quite a bit different. We you know we didn't have a team hotel. Um, we didn't have an opening ceremony. They had an opening ceremony, but they weren't going to, no one was going to march in the opening ceremony. So no one actually went to the opening ceremony. We all went back to the hotel. Um, so there were things like that that were the cool parts from the first one that we didn't get to do. But um, WEG itself, like the competing there for me was, was just amazing because, you know, I hadn't been showing much for the previous few years because I'd stopped training horses and I was doing the clinics. And when we decided we we're going to go back to, um, to try and yep. do WEG again, I bought, I had I, the horse that I showed plenty of guns. So he's a, he's a done got a gun out of a custom chrome mare. Um, we had him and I was planning on, you know, trying to qualify on him and show him, but I bought another horse to, which was the smart spook I was telling you about. Actually, when I said my wife bought another horse, I actually bought another horse. Uh, the smart spook was at Ebony Giants. And 
you know, we bought him relatively cheap. He wasn't a superstar or anything, but I wanted to get back <laughs> in the show pen that year. And I wanted to show it some derbies and I want to show it the NRBC and just get back in under pressure situations. And I was struggling all year. I, I, you know, that show pen groove, you've got to be doing it all the time to have it. And I wasn't, you know, even when I was showing up, you know, I've never been, I've never been a very good competitor. Some people train better than they show. Some people show better than they train. I always trained better than way better than I've shown. And, and, Anyway, so I went to quite a few shows with him that year and just sucked. <laughs> you know, what wasn't good. Just wasn't in the... I mean, it wasn't like I was horrible, but I wasn't good. And um, <laughs> we enlisted a friend, yep. the help of a friend of ours from New Zealand named Jane Pike, and she's an equestrian mindset yep. coach. She's a horse riding mental coach. And she did, we did a lot of work with her during the year. And one of the things she did was we did a, like a Zoom call and she asked us a lot of questions about um like mental states and like limiting self-beliefs you know the stories you tell yourself that sort of thing and then she sent us this uh audio to listen to a different one for robin than for me because we had different questions we, we had different answers to her questions and it was about 35 minutes long and you have to listen to it with stereo headphones she said so i'd be listening to this thing yep. and i starts out jane's talking in the same jane in both ears but after about 10 minutes it splits off and there's one jane in one ear and one jane in the other ear and she's babbling away and she babbles away for the next 25 minutes in two different ears. And I listened to it quite a bit. Um, you know, anyway, so then we, we get to Weg and Jane actually came with us, but we get to Weg and Rodney Peachy, who's our, the word you couldn't pronounce, the chef de quip. Uh, that was, that was a good, that was a good, that was a good podcast, by the way. That was a really good podcast. I'm glad you had Rodney on here. <laughs> <That's awesome>. <laughs> um, he was good and just off track. One of the really good things about um, yeah, he was good. Rodney's podcast was he, you know, he's been around running the whole time. And so he talked about, he would have talked about trainers that impress that, that have had an influence on him that most Australians would have never heard of, you know, which I, I thought was, was really cool. Um, but anyway, so we get to Weg and Rodney says, okay, so what do you think, what do you think you and Robin can do? Cause he's trying to figure out, could we be in contention for a, a, maybe a bronze medal in the team competition? What, with these two horses, what do you think you can get done? Because he already knows, you know, what Martin can do and what Shauna can do. Martin was riding a pretty cool horse. Uh, it didn't fire at, at, at Weg, but, you know, we know what Martin can do, and that horse is, is a pretty big-time horse. And right, Mark, Shauna's riding a pretty big-time horse. So he said, what do you think you guys can do? And I said, i tell you what, yep. if it all works out, everything's as good as it could be, my horse is good, I'm on, my horse is on, I could probably be a two seventeen and a half, and so could Robin. That's what we said. We could probably be two seventeen and a half. And so we do the first round, which is the team competition. And Sean is like a two twenty two or something rather on that mare. She was really good. Um, I'm a two seventeen, and Robin's a two eighteen. And it was the weirdest sensation showing at Weg that time because I was not nervous. I was I was in the zone. I was focused. I've never felt that relaxed competing on a horse in my entire life. And it's weg. I'm supposed to have my ass cheeks clamped really tight shut. You know what I mean? And I'm, I'm just clear and I'm focused. And I, I came out of them like that was, <laughs> that was yeah. interesting. Like I couldn't, I, I've not ever experienced that feeling of being in the zone while competing before Robin had the same experience. And so, um, 
they have that. So the, you know, the first round is the team competition. They award the team medals and then there's 20 in the finals for the individual competition. And what they do is they take the top 15 from the first round and they go straight to the finals and they have a semi-final round uh, where they take 15, oh, 16 to 35 from the first round and then they go again. And so Rob and I both made the semi-final round. I made it in the last place. So 217 was a, was, was the, the last place. I made it in 35th place. And we never expected to even get that far. But okay, so we saddle up, we go again. That was two days later, I think. I think we competed Tuesday and this was Thursday. We go again and I have the same experience I had before, like in the zone, completely relaxed, perfectly clear. And I mark a 220. Robin goes about five horses after me and she marks a 220 and a half, which is the most I've ever marked under That's three awesome. judges. And same thing with Robin, you know, you know, I've marked... High, high scores under one judge or two judges, but never the whole five judge system thing. And um, once again, it was the same thing. It was like, what the hell? That was, how did that happen? I've never felt like that competing before. And, and, and you think about it physically, I'm, I'm, I'm out of whack. I have not been showing for the last three or four years. Um, and it works and I couldn't figure it out. And afterwards I kind of got to thinking, you know what? Something was missing. What was missing? What, what was missing? And then I realized, holy cow, I never realized it before, but every time I've ever competed in the back of my mind, there's this been little voice like you suck. Who do you think you are? What do you think you're trying to do? You can't do that. And I've never been aware of it consciously. Consciously, I know what I can do and what my horses do. And I'm confident consciously, but subconsciously I've had that going on back there. And it wasn't till it wasn't there. Yep that I actually realized it was there. And it comes back to this, this thing that Jane did. So what Jane, that thing Jane made for us was actually hypnosis tape. And the, you can only listen to one of those voices at a time. So the one you're listening to is going in your ah. conscious mind. The one you're not listening to is going in your subconscious mind. And they're both saying much the same thing, but they're just saying them at different times. And that, that was the, that was the right. deciding factor. And so think about this, I, you know, showing before I wasn't, great at it anyway um then i haven't shown for three or four years then i'm at weg where i'm supposed to spit the bit you know what i mean i'm supposed to choke up it's weg it's you know and yeah you know i had the, you know, <laughs> the highest score i've ever had under three judges and robin had the same thing and it was all because of this whole uh mental preparation so i realize now that i you know i, I wasn't that good at showing before but it wasn't that i couldn't do the physical stuff it's the mental side of it and a whole lot of the you know that whole year of therapy that i was going to was the same year uh, that had a lot to do with it too and so it's it made me realize how the how much that mental side of the whole thing it's just so important that and it's you know most people i know in the running deal would not have a would not have a mental coach and now i think you know what I, I couldn't, if I was going to do that, I couldn't do without one. It's just that bigger part of it. So, yeah, so the whole, the whole WEG, WEG 2018 yep. was, was, uh, yeah, it was very, very, very cool. You know, there's a lot of things that you could complain about because the, the place wasn't ready. It was hot. It was sticky. It was this, it was that, it was something else, but hell it's WEG, you know, but we didn't have the, we didn't have the opening ceremony. We didn't have the, the team camaraderie as far as at the, um, at the hotel and stuff, but you know, the facilities were really good. Like the stalls were good. 
the arena was great. It was a huge, big arena. The ground was good. Um, yeah. And we got out of there before the hurricane hit. We, we got finished. We drove out of there Monday morning and the hurricane hit lunchtime Monday. So yeah, it was all good. And it was, you know, it was good once again, having Rodney take the time to come over yeah, there. Wow. And help us That's out. Lucky. Like he, you know, he's been the chef for the last, all, all three of the world of question games that Australians had raining. And when we, they were first looking for someone to do it the first time, you know, cause I think in your podcast with him, you asked him, so how'd you end up doing that? And, and he said, Oh, the guys asked me to be on it. He was really our only choice because he, he, you know, he's got more experience in the rain apart from Martin. He's got more experience in the raining than, than, anybody, right, okay. you know, both in Australia and overseas and, you know, yeah, he, so it was, yep. it was invaluable having, having Rodney along both those times you know i my horse started doing something weird in the middle during the year to where you you come running through the middle and he what would he do he'd throw his hip to the inside and just do something weird right there like anticipating the lead change but not anticipating the lead change you didn't leave the circle you didn't look the other way you didn't try to change leads but he just did this weird stuff and i'd kind of battled it all year not that i'd shown him a lot all year i only just showed him enough to qualify him and I'd been working on it. And in one of our practice things, you know, I said to Rodney, because I think you asked Rodney, did you, how much input did you have in what riders do? And he said, oh, well, I was there just to, you know, if they want, if they want to ask for advice, I'll give it, but I'm not just going to tell them stuff. And, you know, he was in the judges tier one morning and, and um, I said, you know, I'm still struggling with this thing right here. And this is what I've been doing. And he said, well, try this. And um, whatever exercise he had me do, worked and it helped you know help mark that 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 220 so very grateful to have have rodney there and you know so it felt really felt bad for martin because yeah you know martin's the superstar of australian reigning i mean there's never been anybody can come close to what he can do and he just you know he had a horse he really hadn't shown before and it just didn't work and i just i just felt I just felt bad for him because he deserved to be in the final and, you know, he deserved to put up a really good showing there. So I was, I was disappointed for Martin, but um, I was glad he was there and glad for his support too. Yeah. Well, um, the, the little time I got to spend with Martin was just, even though he doesn't say much, you kind of just got to watch everything he does. <laughs> <laughs> well, when I was doing the podcast with Rob, Rob after we finished, he's like, "Oh, we you know, what? Do, you know um, probably do Tom one McCutcheon with Martin. and Joe had like, him on the show, and they Rob, I don't know if that would go for very long. <laughs> you haven't seen that? That was really cool. Yeah, it was very, very good. But uh, yeah, maybe I'm going to have to watch that. You know, uh, Rob had alluded to. He said, "Oh yeah, we're going to get to Martin." Okay. So I thought he was going to tell some Martin stories, yeah, nice. but uh, we got to the end of the second episode, and I hadn't heard any any Martin stories. Oh, good, good. That's that's. that's oh, we've got we've awesome. got a few more yeah. episodes coming up with Rob. Yeah, you know, finished yet. Rob and Martin and <laughs> Rodney, they've kind of been around since the beginning. They're still in it, and we're around, we're around since yeah. the beginning. You know, the beginning. You know, there's Paul Farrell and Rick Tranter and Ian Francis, and um, you know, Ian just does the cutting, and Rick's not training horses anymore, and and Paul may be back to training some horses now. I think I don't know, but. Yeah, so you know they're the they're the ones that are still around from from the, the very beginning, you know. 
Yep. Yeah, that's right. Um, so what's kind of next for you? Have you got a, yeah, yeah. I actually, I don't know. Actually, I was listening to the Tick Maynard podcast you were doing. Um, and, and he was saying that asking well, if you're going to write great a book. Title. I'm, and if you I'm are going to write a book, I think you should call your book The Journey Within. Over halfway through writing a book. You know, they say the type of book I'm writing, you know, they say they should have between 70 and 100,000 words. Less than 70, they're too short. Uh, over 100, they're too long. Uh, mine, I'm probably about 55,000 words, yep. you know, I think. So I'm getting getting somewhere there. Um, but it's not that book. That book, The Journey Within, that, that, that whole stuff, that'll be, that'll be later on. I, um, a few years ago, I got contacted by a TV channel here in America called Farm and Ranch TV, and they wanted me to do a TV show for them. And so... You know, doing doing clinics, I, I started to find that what I found at clinics a lot is right. people that have been given, have had good instruction from people, from knowledgeable people, but it was told in such a way that it was just do this now, not why you would do it, how you would do it differently if things changed and all that sort of thing. And so when I started doing a lot of clinics, I started noticing that, okay, the reason we did that right there is the same as, remember this morning with that other horse and we did this? Now, they're two different things we did, but if you think about the reason we did them, that's why we did them. So I started coming up with principles sort of thing, and I started giving them names. And so after, you know, doing clinics for four or five years or something, I had all these names of these principles. And so when this guy wanted me to do this TV show, I did it. It's called The Principles of Training, and each episode was a, a principle of training, not a technique, but a principle. And the, and the opening credits of the, the show said, Techniques, there may be a million or more, but principles are few. The man who sticks to principles, oh, the man who, the man who sticks to techniques is surely to fail, but the man who works with principles can make up his own techniques or something like that. And that was a quote from a guy named uh, Emerson Harrington, who was an early 20th century efficiency expert. And so that, that yep. show, um, it was for a Roku channel, which is like a computer channel you know it's a bit like a netflixy sort of a thing and then it got picked up by horse and country tv in the uk which is like pay tv which lots of people see it and okay i ended up doing three seasons of that for horse and country tv in the uk of the principles of training so the book is the principles of training and each chapter is a a one of the principles of training and stories about you know things that happened at clinics and how we solve this issue and it's based on this principle and, you know, stories from when I was training horses and the horse did this. And, you know, so that's, that's the first, that's the first book, you know, I almost kind of had it written. Then I, then oh, that'd I be almost, awesome. almost had it written, but you know, now with the way I'm looking at things now, I've just, the principles aren't any different, but how I would go about the principles are different. Like one of the principles is called the don't go to bed angry principle which is about your horse needs to be relaxed. You can't teach a tense horse much. And just how I go about getting horses to relax these days has less to do with what I tell them to do yep. and more to do with communicating how prayer, present and aware I am. So it's, it's the same principle, but I just, have, I just have different stories about different things. Like the story about the Mustang going to sleep in there is in there and th you know, things like that. But uh, yeah, writing. I'm not a. I'm not a writer. So having for me to sit down and have to write is like pulling teeth. Like I would, uh, you know, I would rather go and do the worst job on the place than go inside and sit down and write. Which is why the <laughs> book's not finished. 
But I do have, thanks. Um, I do have some other ones in <laughs> True. mind. That's that right. When it comes out, it's going to be awesome anyway. It's like, you know, basically going to be a, maybe a warts and all, warts and all how you get from the way I used to look at things to how I currently look at things, you know. Yep. Because that's basically, and, you know, I'm going to thank you for what you've done. You've kind of made yourself vulnerable and you've opened yourself up to so much, I suppose, speculation or whatever you want to call it. But it's really, for me personally, it's just opened up my mind in a whole new aspect, like looking outside the box even more, like you said earlier. But without you kind of being able to do that, I kind of haven't been able to get and you kind know, of what's follow funny your lead is when I first started looking at all this stuff, you know, I had to really search for it. Like it's not, it's not out there, but it's out there. It's just, it's just really between the lines. If you actually, if you, I don't know if you've read True Horsemanship Through Feel uh, since you've started thinking about this stuff, but if you go back and read it now, it'll make it, it'll, every word in it will be completely different than the last time you read it. You know, like in the back, in the back of that book. So that's the one with Bill Dorrance that Leslie Desmond wrote. But in the back yeah, well, of that book, I'm there's a do that. you know, which are a description <laughs> of terms. And under the term disconnected is an explanation of disconnected. And the way he explains it, it's got nothing to do with the horse. Disconnected is what Bill would say is, is when a human is, is no longer fully present and paying attention to every little thing the horse does. Yeah, you know, you'd think, oh, in a horse training book, disconnected means, oh, that's when the horse looks off. He's disconnected from me, but it's not about them disconnecting from you. His term for yeah. disconnected is when you're disconnected from them. That could be on your phone. That could be thinking about dinner. That could be thinking about who knows what. That could be thinking about what you're going to do with the horse when you get on him while you're saddling him up. You know, where your mind is somewhere other when your mind is somewhere other than other than where you are. And I mean, I've always struggled with that. You know, I've exactly. I've been relatively open about the fact I've figured out that I've suffered from depression for a long time. And when you're depressed, you're in your head, you know, you're in your head mulling stuff over. You're not, you're not present. And so, um, you know, and the horses has been yep. really good therapy for me that way too, because once I realized how much of an impact that has with horses, I make a point of being present when I'm around horses. Um, still struggle a little bit with my wife, but around horses, I'm much better. Yep. <laughs> yes, true. <laughs> uh, so is there anything else that, um, I think we're, we're coming up to two hours, which is kind of, I thought this is where we were going to be. Um, anything else you'd like to, um, say, um, I, I think podcast, for what I feel is important these days, let anyone we, know we, anything we that you think is kind of important. You know, if you can just start to be more aware of little things, your horse, the horses are just so communicative, it's not funny. It's once you, you would have experienced this, uh, you know, once you start to notice those little things, you think, How did I not notice those before? You know, how did I not, how did I not see that before? You know, and it's just, you're not looking at them. Like you, like I said, usually if you're putting the saddle on, you're looking at where the saddle goes. You're not, you don't have one eye on the ear and the eye and their muzzle and the, you know, all that sort of stuff. And it's, yeah, just, yeah. that's, for me, it's been mind boggling and it's, it's, 
it's having some horses that I've had in to work with that were in the past, they would have called tough. I've just realized that horses aren't tough. There are no tough horses. They're just horses that people don't read correctly. You know what I mean? And so, and, and, or if they are really tough, they come about because in the past, yep. they haven't been, they haven't been read correctly. You know what I mean? So, you know, no, no horses are aggressive. Horses aren't out to get you. They're not the word dirty. You know, in Australia, they use it a lot with horses. Oh, the horse got a lot of dirt. Dirt is defensiveness from not, you know, not having that, what the, yep. what the, uh, therapist would call attunement which is is uh the way that it's described is being seen and being heard you know having your having your voice heard basically you know i mean i think you you know how old are you matt yeah well, close enough so you would have grown up and probably grown up in the same era as me that uh, uh, 35 you know, if you're a little kid and you're worried about something and you're crying it's stop crying or i'll give you something to cry about you know what I mean? A lot of times when horses are anxious, people want to jerk on the lead rep and say, hey, knock that off or whatever. And it's the same thing. It's yeah, like, yeah, <laughs> you're upset and I don't care that you're upset. And I'm, I'm willing to be nasty to you to get you to not show me that you're upset. And, you know, it's funny. I, you know, I grew up in, I had the perfect childhood, you know, mum and dad were home all the time. I had 1200 acres to run around on. There's no drinking. There's no drugs. There was no yelling. There's none of that. But, Everybody had that in, in that era. And for the longest time, I thought, you know what? I had a perfect childhood. Why am I so messed up? And once you get learning about this sort of stuff, that's one of the things that really messes with you is, and it makes us the adults that we are, is that whole, you know, stop crying or I'll give you something to cry about thing, which means you had, um, you had some concerns and they weren't met. You were basically told, stop showing me your concerns. And horses are the same thing. And what's funny, I, you would have heard me talk about on that podcast with Tick, but about a month ago or so, I went to a, um, a three-day, what was called a men's emotional resilience retreat. And it was led by a guy, he's a former combat soldier. Um, he did a lot of work with Tony Robbins. I don't know if you know who Tony Robbins is, but traveled around with Tony Robbins and, and was up on stage with Tony Robbins doing the presentation and stuff. So he did a lot of that stuff. Uh, he's done a lot of, oh, yeah, lot of I've heard of Tony. really, really cool dude. And there were seven of us in this retreat. And like one of them was a former UN hostage negotiator. So he's a badass sort of thing. And there was one guy in there who was this really artistic sort of filmmaker. So there's a lot of different sort of people. But over the weekend, you get to spill your guts to a room full of men and have them spill their guts to you. And the, and the funny thing was everybody's fear, whether you're an artistic filmmaker or you are a um, former UN hostage negotiator, everybody's fears were the same. You think one guy's a, you know, he's not quite a manly man and the other guy's a beast. When, when, you, when, you, when you get down to spilling your guts, uh, get down and be honest and vulnerable and tell the whole story, everybody's yep. fears were all the same. And it's just such an eye-opening thing. And, you know, these days in Australia, Australians are really starting to get into men's mental health, you know, um, which was never talked about like when I was a kid sort of thing. And it probably has only been in the last 10 or 15 years, I think they really started talking about it. And it's a huge issue. And this whole retreat was about a lot of that, you know, just 
getting rid of a lot of the baggage that you've carried around that you've never told anybody. And that's what, you know, all that men's mental health stuff now in Australia, it's about, you know, that whole, are you okay thing? Like, um, you know, being there for people and listening to what they have to say and let them get stuff off their chest. And, yep. you know, this weekend was one of those. And I actually got more out of that than I did out of three years of being, seeing different types of therapists. So it's, a, it was it's pretty amazing. And, uh, yeah. And you feel completely different afterwards. And like I said, you know, as you've experienced, when you, when you feel different inside and yeah, have well. different viewpoint of everything, it definitely changes your horse training. Definitely. Yeah. Like, it, and it's simple. That's the thing. Like it's simple. It's not this, this, perfect this pill that you take or it's just something simple yep. that you just have to think about things a little bit differently yep, and that's just exactly bang, how it just goes. opens up a whole new but world yeah that's that's like, that's oh, what man, i'm on about that's so really cool. what i'm on about these days is helping uh, i'm helping people yep. with their horses but i'm trying to help <laughs> them be aware <laughs> that um if you can start to help get you straightened out a bit it'll make the horse stuff so much easier because a lot of the problems we have with our horses are actually problems we we're experiencing within ourselves that we just don't know that yet. So yeah, that's, that's, that's really what I'm on about these days. I'm still helping people with their horses, but I want them to want them to, I think helping them look at the horse training a different way actually helps them look at life a different way. And I've had so many emails and messages from people like, you know, now I, I get along with my husband different. I get along with my kids different. I get along with my boss different. And it's, it's not like I'm trying to dish out self-help advice. All I'm basically doing is saying what I've done and what I've changed and how it made a difference with, with my horses. And, and uh, I just, you know, tell people that, and then they take it under, you know, under advisement and they do some work themselves and they, they find that, yeah, their horses are different, but so is the rest of their life. Yeah. Oh, well, that's awesome. Um, it's been absolutely great. And I can't wait to meet you because I haven't actually oh, met you yeah, yet. I've come to one of your clinics when you did one at, um, oh, where was it? At Cobbity down at Camden. Yeah, um, I sat there to. for a little awesome. bit. But <laughs> but when you come back to Australia, we'll have to catch up for a beer or something. I'm not really an international because <laughs> yeah. I have an cool. Australian I have an Australian awesome. well, thanks for being the first, so my first really international, international podcast. Um, and yeah, like I said, I was I do. <laughs> well, true. But you live on the other side of the world. No worries. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for having me. <laughs> well, really appreciate this, Warwick. It's been fun. Journey on, mate. Um, and yeah, I'm just gonna that's all right, I'm gonna right, keep following you. your journey and like Here you say, it. journey on. Ha, ha, ha.